For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Eric Castillo, who graduated from the University of Arizona despite suffering a devastating head injury in Iraq. Learn about the importance of blood donations from both sides of the story. And visit a lab where research into the learning and memory centers of insects, fish, and even parasites is being conducted. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. When he suffered a terrible injury on the battlefield, Eric Castillo was told he would never recover, but he set out to beat the odds. Gisela Tellis brings us his story. It was the morning of July 27, 2004. 21-year-old Army Specialist Eric Castillo stood in a parking garage in Baghdad's Green Zone, preparing his Humvee for a mission. I was looking inside the vehicle from my driver's door, checking the fuel, and at that point, that's when I I felt something hot pierced my skull. He'd been hit by shrapnel from a nearby bomb blast and fell to the ground. Fellow soldiers surrounded him. I just remember looking, just looking up and seeing their faces and like, man, I'm messed up. When he awoke weeks later from a medically induced coma, Eric discovered just how badly he'd been hurt. The shrapnel had torn through his brain, shattering the right side of his skull. It had lodged in his frontal lobe, the part of the brain just behind the forehead. Doctors had had to remove a piece of it, about half the size of a fist, to save Eric's life. As the former lead psychologist for the Southern Arizona VA healthcare system, Dr. Michael Marks has seen the full spectrum of injuries the brain can suffer in battle. For this generation, for this war, traumatic brain injuries are actually the signature wound. It's estimated now that probably 10 to 20 percent of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have a traumatic brain injury of some sort. Obviously, Eric's is a pretty extreme example where you, know, you lose 40 percent of your skull and a chunk of your frontal lobe. Traumatic brain injuries can go from that extreme to concussions, uh, blast concussions, especially for this generation of veterans. Eric nearly gave up when doctors told his family he would never walk or talk again. I would think my life is over with. My, I don't have a future. My future is being in this bed, waking up and having doctors. Like, I'll never have a job because I'm paralyzed. I'll never have a girlfriend. Who wants to be with somebody that's paralyzed and, and disappeared? That would run through my head because I felt like nothing there in that bed. I got to a point where I was I had kind of had enough of crying and feeling sorry for myself. And I said, what can I do if therapy is the only way I could get out of this place? I'm going to dedicate every hour of the day to doing physical therapy. That's what I did. Within months, Eric relearned how to stand and walk. He communicated with hand signals and then in writing. During one grueling physical therapy session, he finally spoke to his mother, who was encouraging him in Spanish. And she just kept repeating it. My therapist kept repeating it. And she was there like for all the time that I couldn't do it. 
and you're just like, this isn't working. This isn't work. like we tried it. This isn't working. Like I, I and I just turned around to my mom and I said, shut the f up, shut the f twice. And my mom goes, oh, Eric, and like, do you know what you just did? I felt bad and like, oh man, I just cursed on my mom. And then she was like, Eric, you talked. Through several years of physical and psychological therapy, Eric regained a level of independence that surprised even traumatic brain injury expert Alex Hyshaw. When it comes to severe traumatic brain injuries like Eric's, um, where there's a, a penetrating injury, there's a loss of major brain tissue, your expectation is that there's going to be some major limitations. There's a ceiling on what a person is going to be able to do. Uh, we're never quite sure where that ceiling is, but you're always watching for, okay, at some point we're going to hit that ceiling. And uh, Eric keeps going. We haven't been able to set that ceiling with him yet because he keeps um, passing any markers that we set for him. And again, it comes down to just his being oriented to do better, you know, to keep growing. But Eric hadn't yet recovered the confidence to pursue the dream that had led him to join the military in the first place, going to college. When I was in that dark place, I was like, I'm never going to be able to go to school because my memory problems, my physical deficits, and so like that. So it was, I pretty much just gave up on that. My social worker, Diane, she said, I'm a professor, I interact with students, and I believe in you, I think you could do it, like, just give it a shot. Eric enrolled at the University of Arizona in fall of 2010 and signed up for the Supportive Education for Returning Veterans, or SERVE, program, led and taught by Dr. Marks. He was one of our best students. He would do his homework, he would turn things in ahead of time, he would approach us. Every office hour we had, he was there. Whenever he doubted himself, Eric turned to Diane Topping, the social worker who had encouraged him to pursue a college education. We're friends out of the VA like setting, even though that's not allowed. But that's how much I cared for her and she cared for me. The whole time she was my social worker, she was battling cancer, ovarian uh, cancer. The last time I spoke to her was or the phone, it was before Christmas. When we hung up that day, she pretty much told me, I love you. And at that point, I knew like something really bad. She actually passed away December 31st, 2011. After Diane's death, Eric remained close with the Topping family, particularly with Diane's husband, Jim. At a time I couldn't put my finger on, he became part of the family. We do Christmas, we do Thanksgiving as a family. Eric is always here. Now, I don't say this out of criticism, because I expect somebody who's in college to be somewhat self-absorbed. Most of the people around him are not very aware of how much trouble he's going through to learn. And I suppose I wish that there was a little more awareness of that that a few more people would say, I'm making good notes. Do you want me to send you a copy by email? That sort of thing. And that's a rarity by virtue of his military culture, his disability, and the rest. He is not aloof from them, but he is somewhat apart from them. And yet, on a cool night just two weeks ago, Eric Castillo wasn't apart. With his classmates, his own family, and the Topping family at his side, he graduated from the University of Arizona. And more than a decade after his injury, he found one more way to prove his doctors wrong. 
I don't think about what I want to be next year. Uh, in two years, I don't think about that because to me, it's it's an unknown. Every year for me, it's the unknown because nobody's done it, and 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 nobody thought I would even do a lot, half the stuff that I've done. So, I guess in a way, since I don't know what's possible, I don't even know what to dream of. I'm Gisela Tellis for Arizona Spotlight. You can see Eric's story on our webpage at azpm.org. Donating time or money to a good cause is one thing, but what about blood? For many, that's harder to do, but blood is a resource that is always in demand. Next, producer Mitchell Riley visits an American Red Cross donation center in Tucson with Greg Kogeli. Kogeli is the volunteer coordinator for blood services for the American Red Cross, and he's passionate about donating. The maintenance of the blood supply is, is all held together by a, a shockingly small percentage of people who donate. Very few people ever donate. Okay? And of those people who do donate, a large percentage donate once and don't donate again. So it really, really behooves anyone that can to give it a try. My name is Greg Kogley. This is the place I usually go just because it's on my way home. Okay, okay. no questions. And uh, I've come to know the people here very, very well. So this one here? Okay. We're in one of two permanent facilities that the Red Cross has in Tucson. This facility does uh, two types of collections. Uh, the first type is whole blood, in which uh, a person comes in and uh, they fill up a one-pint bag of blood. Oh, about two hours. Right now, I'm doing a, a platelet donation. Uh, platelets are a component of your blood that are instrumental in the coagulation process, which is very important if you have a cut. It promotes uh, clotting. Platelets are very valuable because they have a very limited shelf life of only five days. Uh, they have to be stored at room temperature, unlike whole blood, which is stored at around 43 or 42 degrees. And then they go to patients that, uh, that need them. I tell people that it's, it's natural to have a certain fear. If you've never done it before, it's not normal to have someone stick a needle into a vein. However, once you, once you try it, then you realize that uh, it's, it's really nothing to be afraid of. Good job. Thank you. Uh, when, when Kai inserted my needle, I, I could barely feel it. And uh, these phlebotomists are very, very skilled. Maybe someday, if too many people are afraid, the blood may not be there. That's what makes me afraid. And which fear is greater? You know? And sometimes you have to conquer your fear. But there's, there's a constant need for platelets, just like there's a constant need for whole blood. The statistic they give us uh, at the Red Cross is one person every two seconds in this country. That requires blood. It, it's much more common than you think. Perfect. You have a chance to, to chill out. No one can really place any demands on you. Right now I'm doing something that's more important than anybody else could, could demand of me. Sometimes maybe we'll talk about sports, but I would say movies is the most, uh, most common topic. So we just have, a, just have a good time. I've given whole blood about 150 times and I've given platelets about 100 times. You can give platelets uh, a maximum of 24 times in a year. 
I like coming here, so I space out my 24 donations every two weeks. The nice gold-colored one. That's the platelets and a little bit of plasma. Yeah. I just think it's a, a beautiful color, you know. And I think it's very symbolic, you know, of what's happening. Or, uh, or just like gold, you know, because it is gold to the people that need it. The more, the more I give, it kind of really makes my desire to give even, even stronger. You know, like I tell them, I'll give until uh, you don't let me come back. You always have accidents. You always will have accidents. You always have surgeries, some of which require huge amounts of blood. You'll always have people that have certain disorders that require you know, constant transfusions. So uh, all the more reason for everybody to give no matter where they live. No one gets blood in the hospital except that they need it in order to survive. They don't go in because it's fun or it's going to make them look nicer. It's very serious stuff. This is the 103rd time I have received blood. I got lousy teeth. It's a plate and I can't enunciate properly. So I've got to slow it down. So. My name is Betty Halverson. I used to live in North Dakota for 52 years. It's outside of Grand Forks where the university is. I graduated from nurses training in 1955 and I worked 25 years. I loved it. I could help people. Okay, so I have a red blood intact, cold, no lumps. Oh, it's O positive blood. O positive, she's A positive, which O can go into A positive. Okay. The reason I need blood is I had a bleed between the stomach and the esophagus, but it's a slight amount, and I have it checked every six to eight weeks to see if they can figure out where this bleed is. The blood is coming up the tube to go into my body. Something so simple as putting it in here and it could save my life. Life. So the blood's getting to her right now. There's no other word for it. Yeah, it's, I, I, this is my life blood right there. So it's, I'm very thankful somebody donated that. Thank you for donating. We just heard retired nurse Betty Halverson at the TMC Outpatient Procedure Center. That was Mitchell Riley's radio adaptation of a story he produced for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the story you just heard online at azpm.org. Do you always know where to find the foods you like to eat or the quickest way to get back home? Human beings have a lot of ways to answer these questions even if we aren't sure. For animals, memorizing that information is vital to survival. 
Until recently, not much was known about how the brains of animals like insects, arthropods, and fish worked. In the University of Arizona Neurosciences Laboratory of MacArthur Fellow Nicholas Strassfeld, experiments about brain function are being conducted. Fifth-year graduate student Gabriella Wolf is one of the key researchers. Wolf studies the proteins that the brain uses to learn and remember and compares the size and shape of neurons across species looking for commonalities. I asked her about some of her preferred lab animals to work with. Cockroaches are, I know they scare people, but they're actually very robust animals to work with. You can open up their heads, you can inject things into their brains, and then close the head back up and see how they behave after that. Other animals, such as honeybees, are very interesting uh, because of their value in agriculture, but they're really delicate animals and they don't tend to live through a procedure like that. We're all familiar with the idea of having rats run in mazes, but have arthropods and invertebrates been used in this kind of research before, or is this relatively new? Mazes have been used in invertebrate research for a very long time. And in fact, certain mazes that were developed for testing learning and memory in rats, we've actually adapted them for insects like cockroaches. The Morris water maze is used in psychology a lot, and it involves a tub of water with a platform that's hidden and the rats are placed in the water and they have to search for the platform. Now if you take the platform away and put the rats in the water they'll look around in the area where the platform used to be because they remember the location based on visual cues in the room. So We've done something similar with cockroaches, where we take an arena that's heated, it's slightly uncomfortable for the cockroaches, and then there's a, a cool spot or an escape of some sort for the cockroaches to find. So they can't actually see that spot. They have to use visual cues in the room. But it's the same concept. They're memorizing a location and finding it again. Why did this course of research call out to you? I first took a class with Dr. Nicholas Strausfeld, my current advisor, and it was just an introductory class. It was fulfilling a requirement, really. But he showed a lot of images in that class of insect brains, and I have a background as the child of two artists, where I've always been fascinated by art and um, one of my particular favorite paintings is the almond tree by Van Gogh. And I remembered that the, the neurons that I saw on the screen, uh, which actually came from a fly brain, looked so much like these uh, tree branches. And, and there was this sort of resonating theme throughout nature. And I was very inspired and, and young at the time. So I asked Dr. Straussfeld if I could uh, volunteer in his laboratory and I did a lot of cutting up insect brains and, and looking at these neurons and I fell in love with it and basically stayed on and worked in his lab and now uh, I, I joined his lab as a graduate student to do my thesis. Moving to another part of the lab, we were joined by Gabriella Wolf's supervisor, professor of neuroscience Nicholas Strassfeld. She's done the most extraordinary work using um, these various immunocytochemical methods to show up novel aspects of brain structures across many, many different species of, 
of invertebrates, looking at commonalities um, across brains of different phyla, uh, identifying centers that in insects we know are, in, are involved in learning and memory, and uh, looking for the homologous structures in crustaceans and in centipedes and in scorpions and all manner of arthropod animals, and also in flatworms. And the flatworms are very simple looking creatures. As the name suggests, they're flat. You can just about tell one end from the other by the direction it's moving. And um, she's found that they have neat little brains and they have centers that basically are organized in the same ground pattern, the same organization basically, as the centers we find in the four brains of insects. So these are very old structures probably and maybe going back for 600 million years and have been inherited by all sorts of animals. This is a scanning laser confocal microscope. We use a laser to excite fluorescent dyes that are attached to antibodies like from the immune system that attach to proteins that we're interested in looking at. So there are three different proteins that we can visualize with this particular microscope. And this is the brain of a velvet worm, or onychophorin, which is related to the arthropods, but evolved before the arthropod group. And in the brain, we can see a, a central structure that may be homologous or the same to a structure in insects called the central body, uh, which were interested in looking at and comparing to the basal ganglia in uh, vertebrate animals. And as Gabby said, it's a, it's, it's a basal arthropod. The question is, what kind of brain did it have? Was it, is it simple or is it complex? It turns out actually it's very elaborate indeed. It has lots of neurons, millions probably, over a million in, in this particular species. Um, and it has all the, the four brain structures that we recognize in, in, in more advanced arthropods. They're really quite fascinating. They have obvious territorial behavior. They hunt, they forage very, very far away from their nesting places. They have, must have a very good memory of where, where to go back to. Uh, they have a, a quite a broad repertoire of behaviors. Apart from that, though, they're still quite mysterious. But they're fun. In another room, Wolf showed me a large, colorful image of a slice from the brain of a paper wasp, in actuality less than three millimeters across. Let's say you have two paper wasps, two imaginary paper wasps, okay? And we have one who is a straight-A student and is clever, and we have one who is not so clever. Can you see that through looking at their brains like this? No, but actually we can compare across different species of paper wasps. So, for example, I have one species of paper wasp uh, whose brain you can see on the screen here, and then in this folder I have the brains of other species of paper wasps that have different behaviors. So we don't really talk about intelligence with insects, but we can uh, look at observable behaviors. And for example, one wasp species might have a very strict uh, hierarchy in their social structure compared to another species of paper wasp. So then we can look for differences in the volumes of brain areas or the connectivity, and uh, sometimes we can actually see this. For example, 
there's a beetle that's aquatic, and you can find it around Arizona called the whirligig beetle. And you'll see them swimming around on the surfaces of uh, ponds. And this beetle has two pairs of eyes, one on the top of its body and one on the bottom uh, facing into the water. And the interesting thing is that we could look at the connectivity of the different eyes to the mid part of the brain, and we found that only the upper eyes are connected to the learning and memory brain structures, or the mushroom bodies, and the lower eyes connected to each other and other parts of the brain, but not the learning and memory structures. So my colleague, uh, Chan Lin, uh, who recently graduated, was looking at learning and memory in these beetles and covering different eyes. And the upper eyes can look at predators uh, looming from above, like birds, and the lower eyes can see possible uh, aquatic predators like fish. We don't know why the, the upper eyes might be connected to the, lear the learning and memory structures, but it's possible that they're uh, looking at visual cues uh, around them, such as trees or shrubs around the pond, for spatial memory. So they can stay in one part of the pond and stay away from another part of the pond that might be more dangerous or not have as much food. So is it easier for you to identify these structures and how these processes work in the brains of these insects and other uh, invertebrates? And that therefore makes it easier to scale up these discoveries to mammals and bigger creatures? Through this research, we've learned that us humans have the, some of the same proteins and brain cell shapes and structures as insects, except we can't poke around in the head of most humans uh, you know, to study what their normal brain function looks like, but we can still study the same proteins and features of brain cells in insects that will inform us about the normal function of our brain cells and proteins expressed in our learning and memory. Also, because of the efficient or streamlined uh, circuitry used by insects to do all kinds of things from uh, navigating mazes to finding objects, uh, we can use the circuitry that we're studying to inform us about artificial circuitry for building robots or artificial intelligence because now we know what the the building blocks of such a structure might be. Earlier this month, Gabriella Wolf completed her thesis and graduated from the University of Arizona. There are pictures of the tiny brains she studies on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.